Welcome to the Philosophy Podcast, where host and lacrosse expert Jamie Monroe will do what he does best, talk about lacrosse. Each episode will provide listeners with education, insights, stories, and lessons about the lacrosse world. We will discuss current events, coaching, philosophies, and college lacrosse recruiting. Now let's get started with your host, Jamie Monroe. The Philacrosophy Podcast is brought to you by Oxia Time, a cool watch company focused on university-branded watches. John Canaris is the founder of Oxia Time, and he was the goalie at Penn in the late 80s who led his team to the Final Four. John is actually best known for being the goalie that Gary Gate dunked on in the Air Gate. Oxia Time makes beautiful, Swiss-made, authentic watches whose design and quality match the essence of the universities they represent. I can attest to the quality of these watches. John hooked me up with a sweet Brown University Oxia watch, and I think it's the nicest thing I own. Initially licensed with eight Ivy League schools, Oxia keeps adding new schools each month. One of the coolest things Oxia offers is custom timepieces to commemorate championships or to celebrate storied teams. Check out the UVA Lacrosse Championship watch. It's sick. Princeton did a really nice one last year as well. Oxia even did an LSU football championship watch this year. For any teams interested in creating a custom watch this season, Oxia will upgrade it at no extra cost to a championship watch if your team wins a conference or national championship next year. For players, parents, and coaches interested in custom team watches, check them out at oxiatime.com. That's A-X-I-A time.com. How's it going, everybody? Really fired up for the in-season podcast with PLL Chaos head coach Andy Towers. This is week two of our podcast and uh, really fired up to talk some across with you. Andy, how you doing, man? I'm above average still. As usual. You're always above average. You know what? Sometimes I'm approaching average. I lived many years where I was, if things went perfectly throughout the day, I would actually get to slightly below average. But the good news is um, I'm no longer at that juncture and I'm, I'm now above average and um and things don't even have to go perfectly to remain above average. So I really feel like I'm, you know, waking up at the casino on Sunday morning with a pocket full of hundreds and I arrived with a pocket full of 20. So I'm feeling above average. So that would be sort of an idea for all of us to know what above average in your mind means uh, waking up with a pocket Maybe. full of 20s and then and yeah. we're going to waking bed with a pocket full of 20s. Yeah. Waking up with a, with a pocket full of hundreds after arriving with a pocket full of 20s. Yes. <laughs> that would be above <laughs> I like that. That cements me above average. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> um, so, all right. You doing? Good. I'm doing well, man. Uh, above, average, above average out here in Denver. So I'm warming up a little bit. Um, the, uh, it's a little irritating that high school lacrosse won't start until uh, May. So, like, field hockey season is about to start out here for my daughter in March and April. So, but I'm so happy that um, college lacrosse is going on so I can watch my older two play. So, um, yeah, pretty above average, I'd say. Perfect. That's, that's excellent. Yeah. All right. Let's talk a little lacrosse. Um, what did you think about the, um, the Penn State-Maryland game? Did you watch that? I did. Thoughts. Um, I thought it. I, I thought it went exactly 
as I kind of thought it would go. You know, in the last three, four years, Penn State has just been an offensive juggernaut. And you combine the strength of their offense with the success of Gerard Arcieri, one of the best Fogos in the country the last four years. And that was a team that every single year we said, all right, this is the, this is the year Penn State's going to win the national championship. And, you know, they, they just were blowing teams out on such a consistent basis until they got beat by Yale in the semifinals a few years ago. And, um, you know, they, they no question really miss Grant Amen at X. Uh, you know, he just had a knack, has a knack for making everybody better. And at the top of that list is clearly Mac O'Keefe. And Mac O'Keefe is an unbelievable player. He's an unbelievable shooter, but he does need to play with somebody that can get him the ball when he's open and in the right spots for him to be at his best. And I think that Penn State is redefining who they are offensively and, and, and they are going to, they are going to get it solved, but they just take a real hit right now because they just aren't the same team offensively that they've been the last four or five years. And it makes sense when you lose a player like Grant Amet, who's one of the very best players in the history of college lacrosse. Yeah. But I think we're starting to see their growing pains here a little bit. And, and to open up with a way better than average Rutgers team, one of the best teams in the country right now, Rutgers. Yeah. And then follow that up with arguably the best team of the last decade in Maryland will exploit where your opportunities for improvement are. And if the goal is to win the national championship and secure a bid to the national tournament via winning the Big Ten, as I'm sure Jeff and his staff and their players have as their respective program goals, I think those two games throw them right into the deep end and I think they're going to be better for it in May when they're able to create this team's identity when it matters most, uh, provided that they're able to make the Big Ten tournament. I mean, there is a concern that they might not make the Big Ten tournament here, uh, considering that outside of Rutgers and Maryland, I think you've got Penn State or Ohio State as the next best team. And Hopkins is the next best team after that. Is Penn State going to end up beating Hopkins? You know, is Penn State going to end up beating Ohio State? I think Ohio State and Penn State play this weekend, don't they? Yeah, they do. That's a, that's a huge game for Penn State, seeing that Ohio State has already beaten Hopkins. And Penn State has not beaten Hopkins and is 0-2 in the league with losses to Maryland and Rutgers, who I think, frankly, are the two best teams in the league. And clearly they proved it through two games. Totally. What was the uh, face-off stat in that game, um, in the Penn State-Maryland game? You know, I, I watched uh, that game, and our series was beaten up Shockey. I want to say that at the end of the first half, that our series was really beating them up. Um, and Shockey is a very good player, but – 
our Siri is, the, I think, the third best FOGO in the country, right? Ah, he's been the third best FOGO in the country the last few years uh, behind Ireland and Gallagher. Um, but I think with the new rules, I think that hierarchy gets shuffled a little bit. When I look at the stats, our Siri finished the game at 71%, winning 17 out of 24. And Shockey opened the game for Maryland, and he got thrashed. He went 0 for 6. Maryland made the adjustment of putting in Connor Calderon, who was a lot more competitive, but still only finished 7 for 17. So Penn State handily won that battle. Yeah. And I thought they played pretty good defense. I mean, um, Maryland didn't really open it up until late late in the game. I mean, I think it was like, you know, 5-5 five, five or six, seven, five or something like that, even in the, into the fourth quarter, wasn't it? Yeah, and, and, and Maryland had a couple of ride-back goals and, and hit some, some great shots. You know, 13 goals seems about right for Maryland. You know, they're a, very, they're a defensive team first, I believe, and they're very in control offensively. I don't think they have a tendency to want to run quite as much as some of the other top programs and top teams in the country. Yeah. You know, it was good to see Jared Bernhardt explode. He's making a, an argument for national player of the year, maybe the most attractive prospect coming up in the PLL draft. Uh, you know, but they have a supporting task, particularly on attack with Maltz and Manaskis. I just am concerned that their first midfield, even though Kyle Long has kind of stepped up and, and, and proved to be their biggest threat in the midfield, I just don't think Maryland's first line is the same as North Carolina and Syracuse. Virginia, um, and and that could be something that in the end may be their undoing down the stretch, but I don't think that will happen until at least the quarters and, and potentially even the semis of the, the national tournament. Yeah, and, and Bernhardt is kind of a freak athlete with just incredible balance to his game because, I mean, he's as athletic as anybody. He can feed it as well. Is just about anybody. He can get to the goal as well as anybody. He's unselfish. But then you look at his running mate, Winoskis, one of the most underrated players in all of Division One lacrosse, I think. But there's, there's no question about it. And, you know, one of the things about Bernhardt that we talked about briefly last week that Chris Gray, I think, does so well is he's also able to make his teammates better when he has the ball be or when he's off ball yeah. because he – um, he's such a good off-ball player, and he understands that so much of the defense's attention is geared toward trying to manage him and hold him down that he makes a cut, and while he might not get the opportunity, he causes enough defensive concern where he creates opportunities for other players. And, and not every top-tier attackman is willing to be a perpetual threat off-ball Right. The way that Chris Gray, I think, has separated himself as, and, and certainly Jared Pernard showed some of that against Penn State. But I agree with you. I think from a, just a sheer athleticism standpoint, nobody is a better athlete in Division One lacrosse, at least attack-wise, as Jared Bernard. He's, he's, he's probably the best overall athlete in Division One lacrosse right now, and definitely as an attackman. And frankly, it looks like he could take over games a lot more than he does but I think that willingness to play within the framework of Maryland's overall scheme and offensive scheme is what has made them so great over the last four or five years while he's been, you know, the lead dog there. And, and 
it's part of the reason they just don't beat themselves in these games is he plays within himself almost too conservatively to some degree, in my opinion. Yeah. Interesting. And when you're talking about the face-off stuff, um, it's funny because you talk about the new rules, you know, so what's, uh, what's, what's now a new rule used to be the, the, the rules of the way it used to be. Um, and, um, I just want to like flash it back to the first time you ever did a plunger in a game and people were just like, what the, what the fuck? <laughs> the first time. So for people who don't know that Andy invented the plunger. And if you don't know what a plunger is, it's, it's basically when you pop the ball, you know, off your face off. Some people change the name, they copy the change the name and called it a pinch and pop. But it's when you, when you can actually go through an entire game, win every face off and not have to pick up a ground ball. Cause you caught every single one. Can you just tell me when that actually happened for the first time? Yeah, I ended up coming up with the move when I was about 29 years old and I was working some lacrosse camps and it just sort of evolved over the course of a summer when I was given face-off talks and I didn't actually put it to use until I played in this tournament out in Portland and I think Neil was actually on that team I was playing with Marin um out in, in, in a tournament and we were playing against team Canada, Roddy tap and, and some of these guys are phenomenal players that we were playing against. And I started to use it. And the great thing about the move is when it first emerged, everybody was finishing the clamps to place the ball. And the great thing about the plunger is you only need to get a third of the ball in order to secure it enough to, to place it. And if you only have to go a third of the distance that everybody else has to go and you're on the front end of the whistle or even with your opponent, you're going to win the vast majority. And throughout the move, you're able to pull it out in a way where you collapse the sidewall and it squeezes the ball for an instance and drags it out. And when you turn your wrist, you can flip it up in the air and I was able to get keep getting it and was able to catch it and catch it and catch it. <laughs> and I can't remember what happened, but, but one of the guys that I was going against during that tournament said, what are you doing? And I said, you're doing it. <laughs> and that was it. You said you're doing it. <laughs> yeah. I said, he goes, what are you doing to put it up in the air like that? And I said, you're doing it. <laughs> <laughs> He just kind of looked at me with a twisted look, and I started laughing. <laughs> it's phenomenal. Well, let's uh, switch gears to Rutgers. You you mentioned earlier that you felt like that they are an above average uh, Rutgers team, which means that they woke up with hundreds on Sunday morning in their pockets. No, no question, no question. Breck has a pocket full of hundreds right now, and uh, I think the Curse Brothers have helped put those in his pocket. I really like that team a lot um that Rutgers has always been a team that's been scrappy and super tough but not too dissimilar to our brown teams it always seems like they were or have been you know a player or two short in terms of depth and while they've been really really close to getting over the hump it just seems like they've lost some heartbreakers over the recent years to Maryland and Penn State and, and Ohio State and you know, have just missed making the playoffs and it's been super disappointing. But again, through two games here, 
this is a team that has shown, uh, you know, that they are one of, I think, the top five best teams in the country at this point in the season. Now, obviously, we're only a few weeks in. Some teams have played as many as four or five games. Rutgers has only played two games. Some teams have played no games. But this team is uh, is absolutely legit across the board. And, and you know, one of the, one of the great things – about having such a dangerous offense is when you fuse it again with the face-off success that this guy, John Duginio, or however you pronounce his name, he stepped up and he's done an awesome job. And again, you, you, you fuse a great dominant face-off guy with a, a loaded offense. And it's not surprising that these guys are putting up the amount of goals that they're putting up. Yeah, it's pretty impressive. And I, I the addition the addition of Kirst to that Rutgers team is just massive because they already had studs like Charlotte Beatties and Mullins. Um, but Kirst just gives them a, a, a just an, a, really a first team all American caliber midfielder that is unselfish. You know, we talked about it last week, but yeah. it is sick and they, they're putting up, I mean, that's goals right there, man. Holy cow. It's a lot of it, it is, it's, it is really ridiculous. You know, you and I had spoke a little bit about Ohio state and how deep, how strong we thought they were defensively, but we didn't feel like Hopkins was going to be an adequate test for their defense simply because Hopkins offense hasn't had a lot of time to come together. And so even though they did a great job of holding Hopkins down, we weren't sure that that was a responsible way to evaluate their defense and Rutgers coming off a good win against Penn state the week before this certainly added up to, to be that test of Ohio state's defense. and They did not pass the test. (laughs) 22 goals is, is not what um, Nick wants, that's for sure. And, and, and to your point on Connor Kirst, you know, I think for any team to really be a threat, they've got to have, you know, threat to win it all. They've got to have a player that can beat a pull off the dodge for goals that also has playmaking ability. You know, you, you reference Chris Gray and, and Matt Moore and Michael Sowers. And, and, and Connor Kirst is right in that same conversation. Jack Carraway, although I'm not, I haven't seen him play enough to, to think of him as a playmaker. I still think of him a little bit more as a goal scorer, although I know he is a athletically dominant beast. Jared Bernhardt is also in that group, but Connor Kirst allows Rutgers to roll out offensive talent that's right in line with those other top teams. Totally. And that's what it takes in order to be able to feel like on your worst day, you're going to be putting up 10, 11 goals and on your best day, you're putting up 20 plus and that's who they are so far. Did you watch any of the Ohio state Rutgers game or you just saw the box? I did not. I just uh, was following it online and saw the box. I'm curious whether they played zone in that game too. And if whether or not they, the part of the reason they were playing zone against Hopkins is they felt like they had a hard time matching up or what the story was as it relates to that. Um, Because that is a lot of goals to give up and, Normally you would think of uh, those guys as, you know, playing pretty stingy defense. Yeah. I mean, I don't know for sure. I do know that I think teams that play a zone have a tendency to bank on the fact that the offense isn't connected across the board with all six guys. You know, if you, you look at Rutgers and you think, you know, maybe this is a good team to play a zone again, seeing that Connor curse is the main playmaker. And while he does win his matchup perpetually, if you don't have six guys connected and on the same page as it relates to a zone specific offense, 
zones can be really, really effective and, and hard to solve. And so coming off of, uh, you know, an inconsistent preseason for a lot of these teams, playing zone early on makes a ton of sense. But if they did play a zone against Ohio State in this game, certainly 22 goals yeah. uh, would lend somebody to believe that this is not a great team to play a zone against. <laughs> yeah. So sticking on the Big Ten uh, train here, Hopkins bounces back with a 14-7 win over Michigan. Michigan, you know, at this point looks like they are, you know, the sixth best team in that league um, with – Maryland and Rutgers sort of established themselves early as the top two. And then there's three teams that are going to be battling for two spots. It kind of looks like. Yeah, that's, that's exactly the way it looks. You know, uh, it was great to see Hopkins bounce back. One of a few teams that bounced back with a, with a good performance and they certainly got it done on the offensive end. Joey Epstein, I think had six goals and, um, you know, Hopkins is going to be all right at the end of the year. I, I, I believe that. And I think ultimately, if I had to put my money on which of that, those four teams would end up filling those last two spots, I think it's got to be Ohio State. And I think it's going to come down to Hopkins and, and Penn State. Michigan does not look good through the first two games. And, uh, you know, a loss to Hopkins after Hopkins came off a, a, a loss the way that they did to Ohio State – there has to be some concern in Ann Arbor right now, but they do have the players and they have a good staff, you know, but they've got to, they've got to get consistent in uh, their ability to, to play against the teams in the league and, and get some wins at some point. Yeah. Um, all right. Let's switch, let's switch gears and talk a little um, ACC. So um, yep. in the rematch between Carolina and high point, um, Carolina just opened it up with a nine, one third quarter. Um, and showed just how scary they can be offensively. Yeah, I, we talked last week about this, and I think this Carolina team is the number one team in the country right now. Uh, they're, they're very, very balanced from a personnel standpoint. Obviously, their freshman goalie has stepped up and proved that Coach Bresci and his staff have made the right decision in starting him over the incumbent, Kate Johnson, right? And, and, and they roll out two big-time defensive players. Bowman certainly has to be on everybody's short list as a first-team All-American and right there in the conversation for National Defenseman of the Year, along with Giles Harrison. Or what I would have said would have been Chris Fake, but he's not playing this year because the IU League choked up on itself. Um, you know, but I, I love Carolina's depth at the midfield. They're rolling out, you know, four, five, six players that all – I think are a threat to rip a short stick. And they all seem like they're on the same page. Chris Gray gives this team balance. They haven't had since Pontrello, as we talked about last week. You look at the ability to finish with Nikki Solomon and Brian Cameron. This is a team that is just a, a, an absolute freight train. If they have success at the X, then they certainly have two of the best guys in Tucci and Trier. But, but even with all that said, I am very surprised that High Point gave up as many goals as they did. You know, they, they again, I, I, I don't think this is much as, as much of a negative High Point as it is a reflection upon just how balanced and how athletic and dangerous Carolina is when Carolina's taking high percentage shots and shooting in a disciplined manner. 
you're forcing goalies to step up and make saves. And, you know, the high point goalie, I think, is very good, but he certainly had his hands full in this game, and, and the score reflected that. Yeah. The shot clock era, 27 goals. You just, you just, you just wouldn't really think about, you'd think about 17, 18, 19, maybe, but 27 goals, a lot of goals. And it's basically because you got to keep scoring, you know, which is awesome. You, you, yeah, you do. And, and, you know, listen, I think all these coaches in Division One, you know, they, they want the opponent's best shot start to finish. There's no question about it. And, you know, as, as disappointing as giving up 20 goals had to be for Torp, 27 goals, you know, I, I think that Torp wants to see Carolina's best start to finish so that he can identify where his team is. And I think they're a lot closer to North Carolina than the 15 goals disparity. Um, you know, are they, are they two goals behind North Carolina? I don't know. I, I think Carolina's probably three or four goals better than high point is i don't think they're 15 goals better yeah. i think it you know i i just don't believe that i think if they played a bunch more times this would be by far the greatest disparity um between the two teams and, and torp has to be disappointed by that but he's going to use this as momentum and frankly it wouldn't surprise me if high point comes back and beats virginia tomorrow um you know that's that's the kind of staff that that high point has i know they've got those kind of players but they need success at the face-off X. And you particularly need success at the face-off X when you're playing against teams as well-balanced and as deep as North Carolina is. There's no question about it. Totally. Uh, Duke took care of business against Air Force, uh, which has been a tough matchup for them in the past. Uh, but uh, 17-7, any thoughts on that one? I'm not too surprised by this. You know, I think that Duke is only going to continue to get better and better and better as the – uh, new players get themselves connected. You know, obviously there are some guys on that team that have been there for the last few years, but when you start to throw in the amount of new talent that they have, either from kids that have graduated that are coming down to finish their fifth year at Duke or whether it's their superior freshman class, you're seeing a team that's only going to get better and better as the season goes on. And so I'm not surprised by this. You know, unfortunately, I think the NCAA dropped the ball to some degree when they just granted everybody an extra season without really thinking out what the fallout of that would be. And you're starting to see, obviously, a logjam that is resonating through, you know, the juniors in high school here. And while it might be a great thing for the kids that got their season cut short in their final year at their respective schools, I think it's created a few super teams out there with these teams in the ACC, the big 10 to some degree that have received players that are among the very best players in the country. And they're already coming into a roster that's loaded. And, and I think the scores are starting to reflect that disparity in talent and depth. Yeah, no doubt. The, the combination of this log jam is going to both um, give Teams unprecedented depth and talent and, and probably create unprecedented unhappiness out of certain people that, you know, are, um, are just not going to get a chance for a few years. Yeah, I, I think the other thing is that the Ivy League has really set themselves back here. You know, just last year, there was three Ivy League teams that we felt were a threat 
to win a national championship between Cornell, Princeton, and Yale, right. and not far behind them were Penn and Brown. Right. And, and, and Jerry Byrne and Harvard are starting to make major strides as well. And all that just gets thrown on ice and they lose a lot of those key players. And I just don't know if the top high school prospects in the country, if they're given an opportunity to go to, you know, a great academic school that is in line with an Ivy League education, but they're in another conference you know, are, are they going to be as eager to sign up for those Ivy League schools on the heels of a decision that just reeks of athletics are not as important to us here? And, you know, I, I, this, this scares me that this is going to create a wedge between where the Ivy League was and how close they were, uh, you know, and these, these other colleges and these big-time conferences. I just, I just don't know if, if they're going to be able to recover for a while. Yeah, I know. I've heard a lot of people say that. I don't know if I agree because I think that, A, there's a lot of those kids took the years off and then the Ivy Leagues are going to benefit from five classes like everybody else for a little while. B, I think in the end of the day, people are still going to take a degree from Brown or Yale or Harvard or Princeton anyway. Um, I think really where it's going to impact is I think there's going to be a lot of people that are just going to be like, you know what, you guys turn your back on us and, you know, go fuck yourself. <laughs> That's what I think. I think yeah, we're going to get I, mean, I, I, I got to be honest, sort of the way I feel. And, and certainly my friends that are Ivy League grads, uh, you know, all kind of share that same opinion. And it's just really, really disappointing for the college coaches or the Ivy League coaches that have to work so hard you know, to try to stay competitive with the best teams in the country out of conference. And that's going to be a challenge for these guys moving ahead. There's, there's no question about it. Um, it's just disappointing, you know, as, as, as guys that went to Brown and, and we watched them with a great win over Virginia last game of the year before COVID kicked in and, and shut the season down. And I mean, it, it, what do you do here? Now I will say, that I heard a very reliable rumor at this point that the Ivy League will be lifting the um, the ban where if you graduated from those schools, you can't play. I think if you can take grad school classes at those respective schools and you have eligibility left, that you may be able to utilize that. And I don't know if that's... yeah. Terry Foy uh, talked to me. I asked him about that, uh, CEO of Inside Lacrosse, and he said that that is going to happen, except for that the problem is, is that at all but two of the institutions, the deadline has passed, you know, for applying to grad school. So that may, uh, may or may not work. But um, the other thing, you know, listen, one last thing on the Ivy League that's such BS, in my opinion, is like if you're, if you're going to go with the it's not safe, then why are you letting them um, practice now and play local games? I don't, I don't understand why you, why you would just, you know, limit it to that because it seems to go, it seems to be contradictory to the, to the whole point of, you know, this is not safe for our, you know, our, our population here at school. So. Well, it just, it just parallels the tidal wave of contradictions surrounding COVID and the handling of it yeah. at all levels, you know, totally. disappointing, doesn't make any sense. Yeah. You got people that, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a mess. It's a mess. All right. Let's, um, 
Let's talk about um, the Syracuse-Virginia game, which yeah, was a great game for a while, and then it's kind of turned into a blowout. What were your thoughts on that game? I kept waiting for Virginia to come back and take control of the game. You know, Syracuse jumped out, and I thought that Virginia was going to come back, and I just thought their balance and their depth and their attack would end up being the ultimate difference in the game. Right. And certainly playing up in the dome is a challenge for everybody but Army. But this this surprised me. And it just never turned. I was just so shocked that we saw so little out of Matt Moore, who, you know, I would consider as one of the top five players in the country and certainly a player of the year, worthy of player of the year consideration. He shoots 0 for 10. He gets shut down. You know, they do get some of the other regular contributors stepping up, Snellenberger, Laviano, Cormier, Bertrand. But just shocked that Matt Moore didn't play a much bigger role in this game. And you got to credit Syracuse for addressing their areas of opportunity for improvement and taking the lessons that Army taught them and applying them and integrating them and, and, and getting it done with just a huge win over a team that along with Carolina, I thought were ahead of everybody else last week, but certainly this loss drops Virginia down in terms of perception that way. The other shock I had was the success that Syracuse had at the X. You know, Peter LaSala had been dominant through the first you know, quarter of the season, so to speak. And I, I felt like between Petey LaSala and Zach Tucci and Trier at North Carolina, that, that those Three guys had handled the rule changes the best, but the Syracuse guys absolutely dominated these guys. It does help that Kennedy was able to get bumped back up and, and play long stick midi. I think that's a real uh, differentiator for Syracuse. And if they're able to get the same sort of production from Owen Hiltz at X that they got in this game where he went three and two, there's that balance that the other top teams seem to have between their attack and their midfield that Syracuse didn't have in their win against, uh, you know, in their loss against Army that they, that they had in their win against Virginia. And this, you know, certainly gives Syracuse a shot in the arm that they needed to put themselves in a position to, to be considered a threat to win the national championship if they can stay disciplined and execute uh, in a connected manner on the defensive end. So great win for Syracuse, tough loss for Virginia, but I don't feel sorry for Virginia ever, not with the amount of talent they have. And Lars and his staff certainly will use this game, um, you know, and and, uh, and put it to work, and they're going to be a better team next time out. There's no question about that. No doubt. All right, so Notre Dame takes care of business against Robert Morris, 19 to 7. Army took care of business, 13 to 5 against St. Joe's. Uh, Loyola took care of business, 20 to 8 versus Utah. Let's uh, talk a little bit about the Big East as a whole. So, yep. Georgetown is 2 and 0 with with a 19 to win one win over St. John's and a 16 to one win over Villanova. Villanova bounced back with a 16-14 win over Marquette. And Marquette had is now 0-2 in the conference with a 10-9 loss to to Denver. And then Denver 
hammered Providence to the tune of 23 to 10. They went on a scoring explosion when it seemed like they were struggling to score a little bit. And just to put into context, this uh, St. John's team, they've been a little bit of a Jekyll and Hyde because they beat Hofstra 19-17 and then lost to Providence 16-8 and then lost to Georgetown 19-1. So it's 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 a strange year. Uh, in the Big East, what are your thoughts, uh, big picture, and, and specifically on anything? Yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty remarkable that Georgetown's on track to give up 12 goals this regular season. I mean, I think I think they got to be pretty happy with that pace. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you look at you're looking at this, and how do you not have Georgetown in the conversation? I mean, I, I frankly feel like they're clearly one of the top five teams in the country. Uh, you know, but again, they they need to play tougher games. And you look at their schedule coming up, and you know, Denver looks as a team that you think, okay, that's going to be a tough game for them. They're always a really tough team. But Denver getting blown out by Carolina, even though it was the second game of a of a death trip back east to open their season, yeah. and with a loss to Duke, even though they pounded Providence, I'm I'm not sure that Denver counts as a as a you know, a big, big, big win right now, even though we know they're a great team with, with obviously the best coaches and, uh, you know, we're going to be there at the end of the year. They play them in two weeks. I'm not sure that Georgetown plays a team that we're looking at and saying, okay, this is a real serious threat here based on what their opponent has done this season. Right. Uh, you know, and, and, and they play Denver twice. They play Loyola coming up, but even Loyola, who we know is also a very good team, but they haven't beaten anybody. They, they, they put it together down the last three minutes of the game to beat Richmond in overtime, and Richmond's a good team, but Richmond's not a top, you know, six team. They're not Rutgers or Maryland or Virginia or North Carolina. You know, they're, they're, they're not. And so I think that we're not going to know who Georgetown really is, even though they're, like, they're just – pounding teams on both ends of the field. I, I, I wish we had a few games in there where we could point to and say, okay, they played North Carolina this weekend like they did last year when just before the season got terminated where we're looking at and Georgetown's coming to the game 6-0 and and Carolina 7-0 or whatever it is. And we're like, okay, this is, this is the first test for Carolina and yeah. the first test for Georgetown here. Right. And so even though they're, they're leaving no gray area, that they are by far the better team in all areas of the game against the teams that they're playing. Yep. I just don't know if we're going to have that conviction and know for sure until Georgetown plays, a, a, you know, a top Big Ten team or any team in the ACC. And those, unfortunately, seem to be the teams where we feel their body of work absolutely makes them one of the top five, six teams in the country. Um, but hard to not get behind their results right now and think, wow, this team is absolutely legit. And I think they are. I just can't verbally defend it until they beat a team that's, yep. that's a proven commodity, right? Yeah, and all they can do is play their schedule. So that's what they're going to do. The thing that's about right. them, uh, you know, the fact is Caraway is a special player, um, can absolutely shoot the snot out of it, is an athlete. He's better off ball than than the total ball carrier, but but he will he will run right by you and score a goal. And he popped a nice behind the back feed 
uh, for a goal on a cut. I saw that. I so, saw I mean, that. he's got some, he's got some abilities, but they're, they got pretty good balance, man. I mean, between uh, McDermott, Declan McDermott in the midfield and, and uh, Bundy, those two guys are. Yeah. Bundo's kids. I mean, right. want to talk about some of the better athletes in, in division one midfields. Um, Georgetown's got some of that. Um, and yeah. defensively, you know, they're, uh, you know, it's pretty crazy. You got to you got to say it's a little bit unlikely that that they'll, they'll ever give up one goal again in the game. Um, but you know, the fact is is that they're doing. You know, their 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 uh, their defense is is playing this great sort of combination of hard to beat and getting doubles on you more than slides, just timing it really really well. And Owen McElroy is playing sick in the in the goal. Um, so it, it's going to be interesting to see. But you know, listen, Denver is legit. And, you know, I agree with you when you say, when you say that judging their Carolina loss and, and, you know, is, is a little bit iffy because when you play in a back-to-back scenario and your opponent does not, it's a pretty big disadvantage. They knew that going into the game and it was worth it for their RPI anyways, but for everybody else, you just got to kind of realize that Denver would, they played those guys again. They, would, they may not win, but it'd be a closer game for sure. Especially when, when Kevin, puts together the practice plan and they go in and they watch film before they prepare for their next opponent. Like, do they go in there and there's like an 18 second clip and it's like, all right, well, we really broke down on possession 13 against Villanova here in game one. And they watch that 18 second clip and then it's like, okay. Um, And then as they're getting ready for St. Mary's today, they're watching film of St. John's and then it's like, it's like a 16 second clip. And they're like, okay, defensive meeting in here, bring it in here. Okay. Hush, hush. Let's, you know, get, get ready. And everybody gets their pens out and, and Kevin puts the film on it. It's a 16 second clip of, of St. John's one goal. And then they're like, all right, bring it in here tight defense, ready, break. And then they go and they play like, (laughs) do we have any color on what those defensive film review meetings are like when you give up just one goal against, uh, Villanova, and then you come back and you give up one goal against St. John's. Like, are they like, all right, well, listen, we really got to hold this team to zero this week. And they're like, okay. And they're all serious about it and stay in character all the way outside of the building. <laughs> they definitely uh, took too many penalties. I think that was probably a big point of emphasis. Um, and, you know, the interesting thing is, is that Villanova bounced back and scored 16 against Marquette. Yeah, which accentuates, uh, you know, what Quint's point was about Georgetown making a defensive statement in that first game against Villanova. But I think they're making a statement on both ends of the field. And this is a team that's really scary. I mean, uh, wouldn't it be interesting if Georgetown's able to go 12-0 and to the Big East and, you know, ultimately get like a, you know, a three or a four seed simply because of strength of schedule going into the tournament at, you know, let's say they, they win the big East tournament and they're, you know, 14 and 0 going into the national tournament and they haven't played a, a close game yet. Like that, it doesn't seem like that's unrealistic based on the first two results and everything else. And then you look at their schedule, but I don't want to jinx them, yeah. but like uh, you never know. Yeah. It's going to be uh, it's going to be hard to go through a, a season, uh, you know, and having to beat a team three times and to beat much less beat everybody. But they're making they, they they've they've got a good start here, and so uh, it, it would be nice 
don't be surprised if um, if somehow uh, you know games pop up. You know, in this COVID era, schedules are going to be a little bit fluid because someone's going to miss a game and they're going to be looking for a game. Um, so I love pop ups. I love pop ups too. Yeah, Nick, they're so exciting. <laughs> they really are. Just pop every time I get an email, I think it might be a pop up. That's why I love my checking my emails because I think something it might pop be. Up. I love getting good news. The pop up is such a rush. <laughs> um, <laughs> At, have a great yeah. week. Awesome talking lacrosse with you. Um, awesome talking, uh, hearing about some uh, face-off stories. Um, I want to get into more de detail and depth on that as we go, but um, have a great week, and uh, we'll catch up next time. All right, you're the man. I'll talk to you soon. All right, brother. Take care.